Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. This morning, as we work through this passage, I want to draw your attention to three things that uh, really stood out to me, <coughs> excuse me, that really stood out to me as I read through this, and, and three things that, that sort of drew my attention. What, what, what caused these things to, to happen the way they did, or who are these people, and so on. And, and so, as we read through this, this is what I want to do. I want us to look at the people. I want us to look at the place. And I want us to look also at the presence. And so as we look through here and read through these passages, these verses, we're going to look for the people, the place, and the presence. First of all, we're going to look at the people. We're going to see who they are. Look at with me in verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man, to Jerusalem. The first thing we see about these people is that they're the children of Israel, and this is very, very important for us. The continuity that we've already been talking about ever since I started going through the book of Ezra, from my introductions through chapter 1 and through chapter 2, the continuity is very striking. We're not talking about a different group of people. Now, we know that Abraham was called by God way back in Genesis. And God promised that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. And so God promised to start a nation through Israel or through Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God. And he takes on the name. God gives him the name of Israel, which means to strive with God. And so Jacob's name, Israel, becomes a picture of what the life of the people of Israel, the children of Israel, will look like. They will be striving with God. Even through the Exodus, even as God has delivered them, they complain and they're bitter and, 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 and they want to return. And even in the Exodus, even just immediately following the Exodus, we see these people are living up to their name. They're striving with God. We go into the book of Judges and we see time and time again that they sin, 
that, that God brings punishment upon them and then God brings a deliverer and so then there's reconciliation with God and then they live a blessed life during the life of the judges and then all of a sudden idolatry enters again and then they strive with God and this cycle continues of, of them striving with God over and over again. The kings come into the picture and, and we start off with Saul who doesn't have any heart whatsoever with God. He's a picture of, of the people, right? What the people wanted. And then God gives them David, a man after God's own heart. And David leads them to, to love the Lord and to, to strive for the Lord's glory and so on. But then Solomon comes into the scene and he only has half a heart for God. And so at first he wants to, to follow the Lord and pursue the Lord. But then all his many wives draw his heart away from the Lord. And he begins to, to, to fight with the Lord and strive with the Lord. And so this, this picture is one... In the book of Ezra, these are the children of those same people that strived with the Lord. As a matter of fact, we know that the reason they were in Babylon is because God had had enough. And he kicked them out of the land and he sent them into exile so that he could show the world that his holiness and his righteous standard will be upheld. But in the book of Ezra, we see that God's grace and his mercy is revealed and he brings them back. And so this identity as the children of Israel, is important for us. We're talking about the same story. I entitled this message, uh, So Many Parts of the Gospel. We're going to see that in this passage, and this is just one of them. One of the parts of the gospel that we see this morning is that this is the children of God. These are the children of Israel. There's a longevity to this story. God is still working to save his people. He didn't change his mind. He didn't change his plan. He can be trusted. God remains the same. And so in these, this picture, we see that even though God had driven them from their land and had placed such judgment on them that they had lost all hope of ever retaining their identity by themselves. Even, we saw last week, some of them returning to, the, to um, Jerusalem don't even know their heritage. They don't even know who they are. And yet, they are still identified by their lineage, their children of Israel. God is faithful. In verse 2, we see that these people, uh, we see in the end of verse 1, it says the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. These people are unified. They're, they're, they're together with one purpose. These people are God's people, and he's working in them. Who are they? They're the children of Israel, but they're also individuals. Ezra gives us two names here in verse 2. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And these are two very, very important names. I said this before, and I'll continue to say this. I won't spend a lot of time today on Yeshua because his significance comes up in, in later chapters. But we know that the name Yeshua is the same name for Jesus it means Yahweh saves. And it's very significant that the priest who's the, the one who heads up the priestly order in this book is the name Jesus or Yeshua. And it's significant that we see the name Jesus taking this priority because it, it really is God who stirred up the hearts of the people. It is God who stirred up the heart of of Cyrus, God is the one who is bringing salvation. And so this person here is, is important for us, this priest who will do the work of God 
on God's behalf. The second name that we see here is, is Zerubbabel. And this is really interesting. And I didn't know all these details, but Zerubbabel is the grandson of the last king to sit on David's throne before Nebuchadnezzar came. Zer, uh, his, his, uh, his grandfather's name was Jehoiakim. He was a king taken by Nebuchadnezzar to uh, Babylon. In 2 Kings chapter 24, it tells us that Jehoiakim was one of the evil kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And so Zerubbabel has this direct connection to the lineage of David. And the exile took place during Jehoiakim's reign and, and Nebuchadnezzar took him and most of his family. And so we have this bookend. We have Jehoiakim who was an evil king representing the reality for why the people were in bondage because he did evil. The bondage came not because God was some kind of brutal taskmaster and a big meanie, but the king of the people was living apart from the Lord and doing what was evil. And so God judged the sin. Zerubbabel grew up in Babylon. It's all he has ever known. And now Zerubbabel has the opportunity to come back as part of the, the remnant to return to his homeland. It's important to note, though, that Zerubbabel doesn't return as the king. I want you to think about that. Zerubbabel is the grandson of the king the last king who sat on the throne in Jerusalem, the son of David. But when he returns, he doesn't return as the king. There is another king. Cyrus is the sovereign over this land. And so when Zerubbabel comes back, there's sort of this leveling of the playing field, right? It's as if the people are looking and seeing, where's our king? Where's our king? Where's our king? And this story leaves them waiting, they have a man who qualifies to be king, but God doesn't make him a king. I wonder why that is. I wonder what God has in store for us. And I think it's also important to note that Zerubbabel's name shows up in two important places in the New Testament. If you look in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, we see Zerubbabel's name appears again in the very lineage of Jesus Christ. And that's a significant thing for us. I mean, let's think about this. Here, 500 years before Jesus Christ is born, his great, 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 his really great grandfather is paving the way for him, Jesus, to walk on these streets, to sit in the shade of the offspring of the trees that are being planted during this, this rejuvenation of Jerusalem, and to enjoy the fellowship of the ancestors of the people that Zerubbabel is leading back into the promised land. The people in this passage are very important for us. They point us back. God's story is the same. And they point us forward. God's story will be completed. They point us back so that we can look back and see that God is always faithful. And they point us forward to say, trust me, I will keep my promises. And these people are significant for you and I because this is the situation we find ourselves in looking back to the God who made promises and looking forward to him keeping the promise. And this story is relevant for us. There's so many parts of the gospel. Not only who are they, but what did they do? Look in verse two and three, or look in verse uh, two. It says, Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his king, kinsmen. And what did they do? It says, They built the altar of the God of Israel 
to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, they set the altar in place. This is significant for you and I as we read this story. They built the altar, or the altar. The priest and the son of David have returned to God's city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, and they are building, building the altar of God. We can see so many parts of the gospel message coming together in this one verse. The priest, the one who brings man to God and God to man, along with the son of David who carries within him all of the hopes of God's promise of the eternal king of kings. And we see the altar where the blood is shed and the sacrifices die for the sins of the people of God. All in one passage. All parts of the gospel that you and I hope in are seen right here. This is such a great representation of all of God's words, all of his revelation. The priest, the king, the altar. This is what God is doing. All of these people returning to the place where God has promised to bring eternal salvation for his children. Think of the meaning of this moment in the history of the people here. Think of how, this, how much this means. They have the words of promise and hope from Moses. Look in verse 2. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, going way back to Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They have a priesthood that is descended from Aaron and from the Levites. They have them here. God's message is being Pulled together. Nothing is being left out. God's promise is being accomplished in these people. This is the gospel. They have a son of David. God had promised that, God, that David's line would never end. And here they have a real true son of David leading them. They're back on the right path. These people are now experiencing the fulfillment. God's promises are so very near. You can feel it. There's an excitement and a passion. And these people are right there to experience it. As they live this life, they're living the life of the promise. And they can see it every time they go to Jerusalem. Every time they go to Jerusalem and they see the preparations being made for a temple. They see the priests offering sacrifices. They see all the people unified in, as one man back in the city of peace. God is at work and you can just feel the anticipation. This is a precious reality. The people... The second thing for me was the place. This is, this is the altar. This is the, the place where the rubber meets the road, so to say. In verse 3 it says, they set the altar in its place. This isn't haphazard. This isn't random. They didn't just find a, a nice, convenient place that, that had good aesthetics. And they're going to just build an altar right here because they think this would be a, a pretty convenient place. It says that they set the altar where God's work is done in its place. God had already preordained where that would be. God had already established this is what I want way back. We can read in the book of Exodus. We can read in the book of Leviticus. We can read the story of, of, of when David prepared to build the temple and Solomon built it and they put it in its place. And so there's a structure here. 
And this is the place that they journeyed from Babylon to worship at. This is, this is a significant location. Think about the reality of God's message to the children of Israel, that he would be worshiped and identified with Jerusalem. This is the place where I have set my spirit. This is the place where I will be worshiped. This is fantastic because they were in Babylon. They were in a totally different country and yet God brought them back. God gave them their freedom and he gave them the opportunity to praise him and worship. There's several things about this place that I'd like to point out. The first one is the reality of this place. When we read this, it says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Think about the smell of this place. The reality of this place. They were offering up burnt offerings. This is, this is not just some hypothetical idea of salvation. They could smell it. They could smell the flesh burning. They could smell the, the incense and the herbs that, that they put on with the, the, the sacrifice to sort of mask the awful smell of it. But these people, as they were gathered around the altar, they could see the reality of what was happening. They could smell it. Not only that, but they could see the reality of this. They actually built an altar. They took stones and they placed them together in a proper order, in a proper place, and they could see the reality of this. They could see the people gathered as one to experience these sacrifices. They could see the, the lamb. They could see the herds. They could understand that one of the big parts of this sacrifice was that they would take a lamb that was without blemish. And so that would be something that they would see. This is a lamb that has no blemish. They would be able to understand the reality of it. This would be something very obvious. Think of this. These are some great looking animals, right? These are some good looking animals. They could see this truth. They could see the blood everywhere. They could see the blood on the priest's garments. They could see the blood in the utensils and the vessels. They could see the blood on the altar. They could see the reality of what was going on. I think for you and I, sometimes we miss this. Out of sight, out of mind, we don't recognize the power of the gospel because we don't see the blood on the cross. Because we don't see and smell the reality of a man who has been beaten to within an inch of his life and then dies. We miss this, but they didn't miss this. In this picture, we see the reality of this place. This is where the rubber meets the road. Something actually happens on the altar. Think of the sounds. People everywhere talking about what God has done. People everywhere talking about these animals. People everywhere talking about what's going on in this moment. The reality of this truth. These are all these things that make up the gospel in this story. The priests and the Levites talking about the process and why we're doing this according to the law of Moses, the man of God. Think of the sounds of the lambs waiting. Think of the sounds of the lambs being corralled or, or being caught up. Think of the sound of them being slaughtered. As we think of the gospel here, we think of the altar. 
There's a reality to it that is powerful. All of these things to remind the people of God that what he is doing is real. You can't deny it. All of these things are part of the message that God has brought them home and that he is at work in them to bring his people to salvation. All of these sights and sounds and smells hammering again and again and again that God is at work. Another reality is something that that is challenging for me is the security. Look at what it says in verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Something about the process that they were going through gave them security. The reality of God at work All of the people that are surrounding them that disagree with what they're doing and that are going to come upon them aggressively in the the following chapters, all of these people that the, the people of Israel are aware of, they're all there. And what do they do? Do they build ramparts? Do they build defenses? Do they do they do they build and stockpile weapons and and food and provisions for fear of all these people? No. It says the reality of what they do is they set the altar in its place and they get their lives right with God because they feared the people. There's a security in the cross. There's a security in the work of God. In this place, it's real. Something else about this place that stands out to me is the repetition. In Exodus 29 Moses does give instruction for the daily burnt offerings, and it's to happen morning and evening, day after day after day after day after day after day after day. The priests are to continue to offer these sacrifices, always right there, always in their faces with the sounds and the smells and the sights. God doesn't want them to forget. It's not simply a reminder. This is their duty to engage with the Lord every morning and every evening. Is that not a part of the gospel? What a great truth. I mean, we're challenged to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, lavishly filling our hearts and minds morning and evening with the reality of who God is. And that's what happens here over and over and over again. They are to remember, they're to believe, and they're to obey every morning, every evening, always pointing to something bigger. Look at what God is doing. Look at what God is promising. Look at what God is accomplishing every day over and over again. What a place. The third thing about this place is the redemption. This is the place where the price is paid. This isn't just something that they do. You know, this isn't something that they do to to gain some benefit for their harvest or, or for their planting or for their fertility. This is not something beneficial in that way. The altar is a place where redemption happens. At its very core, these sacrifices are atoning for the sin of their people. These people cannot stand in the presence of the Lord because of their sin. These people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Even their righteousness is as filthy rags. The life of the sacrifice for the life of the people at its very heart 
The altar is a place of death. It's a place of redemption. We know that the soul that sins shall surely die. How in the world will we escape without a substitute? Every morning, every evening, seeing this truth lived out, smelling it, hearing it. And then the reconciliation that this place brings where the relationship is repaired. This place, this altar, is the place where the people meet with God in a physical way. Can you imagine the precious reality of being in the very place that God met with His people as they gathered around this pile of stones? This is where God met with them. The reconciliation that happens here is a powerful picture of the gospel. In this moment, in Ezra chapter 3, God has brought his people back into his way. And now they're standing with him doing what he wants the way he wants. There's reconciliation. So much of the past centuries in the lives of these children has been spent walking away from God. Time and time again, the Lord sent his prophets to his people to plead with them to get their lives right with him. And yet they continue to walk in the evil ways of their father. But here at this altar, here at this moment, they're all in one of one mind in Jerusalem. And at this place, they're being made right with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The people and the place, the most important thing is the presence. I love this. Look what it says in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So the children of Israel... Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And look what it says. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The presence makes the difference. This is God with his people. I gave you three things under that. Number one, he is present in his people. He is the God of Israel. They were identified as the children of Israel. He is the God of those people who strive with him. He is their God. He doesn't deny it. They fight with him at every turn. They rebel against him in every moment. They sin and yet he is still their God. His presence makes all the difference. What a beautiful thing. He is the God who never breaks his promises. And he promised to be their God. And he still is. These Israelites aren't just some cultural anomaly. They're a chosen race. They're a people for God's own possession. And he is present in the world in his people. That is a powerful truth. He is personally connected to them. And that's what makes all the difference. They're his people. Not only is he present in his people, he is present in his word. 
That's what I think is, is, is probably the most significant thing for me in this passage. He is present with them in his word. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to his creatures. By his word, by his revelation. Verse 2, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. That's a powerful reality of how they know. Verse 4, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written in God's word. And offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule of God's word as each day required. God's word brings his presence to the people. When God's word is read, he is heard. We can know his will. We can know God's will. We don't have to guess at it. We don't have to wonder at it. He has revealed his will to us in his word. And when we read his word, he is present to us to know what he wants. We can know his heart. We can know his heart. It's very hard to know somebody well enough to get into their heart, to understand how they're feeling, what their, what their facial expressions mean, you know, what their, their sighs and their groans and their mumbling means, what their giggle means. It's very hard to get to know somebody that well, but we can know God's heart because he's present in his word. And these people... In this place are living in the presence of God because God has revealed himself to them and they have it. And that was Ezra's main thing. He was a scribe and the word was so important. We can know God's feelings through his word. The interesting thing for me is this. How can we know these things now? How can you and I know his will? How can you and I know his heart? How can you and I know his feelings? The exact same way. We can know God the same exact way that the children of Israel know God. And it's right here in his will, in his revelation, in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. He has actually told us the exact same way he told them. We can know how to worship because of the same word that told them how to worship. We know God through his word. He is near to us. Not only is he present in his people and in his word, but he's present in the sacrifices. And that's one of the significant things for me as we read in Exodus 29. In Exodus 29, it says this in verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And then he says this, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. God is present in his sacrifices. That's how we can know him when we relate to him that way. What a great truth this is. 
Colossians tells us that these things are just a shadow. But the substance belongs to Christ. Do you want to meet with Christ? Do you want to know Christ? Do you want to understand God in a powerful way? Come to Jesus. All of these things that we read in the Old Testament are just shadows of the one who is coming. All of these things in the Old Testament, they're just parts of the message. But the complete message is found in Jesus. This morning as we prepare to go eat, let's think of this. When we think of the people, let's remember that the story still continues today. We are God's people if we've been born again. God's kingdom is still at hand. We are still enjoying the accomplishment that Zerubbabel had a part so many centuries ago. We are still walking in the ways of the same God. And in many ways, we are still striving with the same God. The story isn't changed. So many parts of the gospel message come together in this verse. Remember, we have Jesus, the priest, the one who brings man to God and God to man, along with we have the son of David, who is Jesus Christ, who carries within him the hope of God's promise of the eternal king of kings. And Jesus Christ is the very altar and the sacrifice whose blood is shed. And he is the substitute who dies for the sins of the people of God. Church, we have this message in Christ. Think of the meaning at this moment in history. We have God's word. We have his truth. We have the accomplished work of Christ on the cross. God's promises this morning are very close to us. They're very close. What do we do about the place? Whereas this place in Ezra has GPS coordinates located at a physical address in Israel, when we read the story of Ezra and we read this, we could actually go to that place. But today, for you and I, Christians, we are at that place wherever we are at any given moment. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We have Christ now. In the message of the gospel, Jesus is the one who performs the works to bring us from exile into the presence of the Almighty God. Jesus is the one who stirs up our hearts. Jesus is the one who opens the door. Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He fills that place in life now. Jesus Christ plays the part of the altar. Jesus Christ plays the part of the sacrifice. We don't need to do those daily anymore, evening anymore. He has done it. For us, this morning, the reality of the cross is seen. All have sinned. All has, have fallen short of his glory. No one comes to God. All have turned aside. We need a redemption that is final. We need one that is not repeated daily. We need reconciliation that is eternal. And God offers that to us in Jesus. God makes us right with him. For us, it is right here at the cross. For our church, it is right here in our hearts where Christ lives. For our community, it is right here in our lives. They don't need to go with Ezra to Jerusalem or to the promised land. 
The world outside our doors has the gospel of this truth and it resides right here in Christ. The smell, the sights, the sounds of the gospel are to be felt from us. That's what John means when he says that which we have seen and heard and felt with our hands. Our hands have handled this concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is for us today. All of the parts of this passage in Ezra find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And you and I can have that. The place we're looking for is not in a different nation on the other part of the world. The place we're looking for is the cross where Jesus died for sins. It's the empty tomb where Jesus raised and demonstrated his power. So many parts of the gospel find their place right there. And for us, even more so, is the presence of In this story, so far, we're seeing God's people, but before long, we're going to see people that aren't God's people. Not all people are God's people. I think we want to think they are. I think it makes us happy and feel good to think that, you know, people, all people are going to heaven, but that's just not the message. If that were the message, the altar would mean nothing. Why would they need a sacrifice if everyone is going to heaven? Jesus told Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he could not see the kingdom of heaven. And in a very real way, God is the one who is standing in the way of sinners. They cannot get to heaven unless they repent and believe on him. Romans 1.18 tells us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. John 3 tells us whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. His presence makes a difference. Only the saved are his people. God's blessings and his curses are both promises. They're both promises. He both promises to bless and he promises to curse. And the source comes from him. He will bless those who repent and believe, but he will curse those who rebel and refuse to believe. And this isn't some kind of arbitrary end of life happenstance. When you die, something happens. The Bible says that Jesus Christ himself will judge the living and the dead. In the end, the one who is the sacrifice will apply the sacrifice. Just like we have seen in the story of Ezra, God is at work in the lives of his creatures. And just like they respond to his presence and obey or rebel, you and I have that opportunity today. And I want to call on you. Very well, possibly, there's somebody in here today who is one of those rebels. You, you, you want to receive those promises at the end of your life, but you're not willing to give up your life to get it. I would call on you today to repent. Take the benefit of the sacrifice. Repent and trust in Christ alone. Because God's presence does make a difference. Christians, his presence is the difference for us. Galatians 2 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His presence makes the difference. 
And this is the reality of the message that we've been looking into today. In Jesus, we have a people. In Jesus Christ, we have a place of security and salvation. In Jesus Christ, we have God himself. In Jesus, we have life. Church, this needs to be and become the foundation for our lives. Because it's all about Christ. Because of the work of Jesus, we, the church, can meet together as one man and worship him, united. Because of the life of Jesus, we can have assurance that no matter what the world throws at us, we are secure from the fear of the people of the land and anything they can threaten us with. Because of Jesus' presence, the presence of God makes a difference. The presence in his people. Do you need his assurance? Get with his people. Do you need his assistance? Get with his people. Do you need his acceptance? You need to get with his people. The presence of his word. Do you need his hope? Turn to his psalms. Do you need his wisdom? Turn to his proverbs. Do you need his encouragement? His deliverance? His guidance? Turn to his word. Do you need God? You'll find him here. In the presence of his sacrifice. Do you need forgiveness? Call on his name. Trust in his work on the cross. Look to him for his grace and mercy. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His presence makes the difference. Let's pray. Good Lord, I thank you for your promises, and I ask for your mercy today. Work in our souls that we would see you that we would see ourselves as we really are, that we would repent and believe, that we would walk in your way. Lord Jesus, help us to know you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.